Recorded live by the least illustrious G&B comedy alums who call North America home, it's Transformation Thursday. My name is Bill Satry, and because I don't know how to say no, I am now the big voice of the podcast. Your host for this journey through Tangentville are Natalie Walker from Mission, British Columbia, and Amy Stevens, the displaced Minnesotan who now calls Rochester, New York home. And my name is Natalie Walker, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we are speaking with Erica Marie Schultz about her childhood trauma, which meets the dictionary definition of torture at the hands of her parents, teachers, and peers. Just a warning, this episode does deal with childhood sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. So if you will be triggered by this topic, please go back to episode one and hear Amy's story of coming out. And of course, my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. But before we get to our interview with Erica Marie, the big voice of Transformation Thursday, Bill Sadry is here to remind you that what you are listening to is copyrighted material. This is Bill Satry, the big voice of Transformation Thursday, here to remind you that what you're listening to is copyrighted material, all rights reserved 2021. You can find Transformation Thursday online by searching for at TransThursPod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It's free, and it does help get Transformation Thursday to a larger audience. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm guessing my co-host pronouns are watermelon balloon face. (laughs) Those of you who can't see, I was making a face at Amy to try and mess with her. My name is Natalie Walker, and my pronouns are she, her, and we are here today with Erica Marie, and we are talking about childhood trauma and recovery. Would you like to give us a little a little background and introduce yourself, Erica Marie? Uh, sure. Hello, my name is Erica Marie. My pronouns are she, her. A little background is I'm a transgender woman, but um, it took me until very late in life to be able to even recognize or see that in myself due to the fact that I was tortured into submission when I was a child. And I was a really long road to be able to recover and be able to get here and be able to smile and be happy and be myself today. That is some very heavy stuff to get past. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing journey. It really was. Yeah. And when you, when you say torture, you're not. You're not joking around about that. I mean, so oh, sure no. what you want. I mean, but you this yeah, no, I your... mean like dictionary definition, the literal definition of torture, imposition of physical pain and psychological pain in order to change the mind of the individual. I was tortured in order to change my personality. When I was born, I was very feminine. I was very much enamored with my father. And my parents got divorced very early in their divorce. And they, in the early 70s, they saw my feminine qualities as my father had um, molested me when I was a child. I have vague memories of him um, offering me his penis to hold. And um, I remember my mother coming in to the um, bathroom and like screaming and putting me out in the room in a different room and in the dark i remember hearing all this screaming i'm able to talk about these now because of years of therapy but i carried like that memory and a thousand other memories with me they took all of their anger and their fights and they focused a blame structure on me as my existence was a consequence of my father's penis 
And my father saw me as a consequence of my mother's being a bitch toward him was kind of their thing. So they both had this, and I was raised separately, traded between the both of them. So between each of them, I would try to find ways to express who I was, but I was always met with a wall of you're fucked up because of what my spouse did to you, my ex did to you. And they both carried the same message. And then they carried their own forms of coercion to try and change my personality and try and make me into this son that they wanted and demanded and expected me to be. So my mother chose various boyfriends to make a man out of me. I would be beaten with belts. I would be locked in closets, straight up just hit, punched. I have one memory of just crying and I'm being dragged through the house by my foot. I came home from school one day with a report from my teacher that my handwriting was absolutely beautiful. It was in the first grade. And um, I had the, I was, my handwriting was as beautiful, if not more beautiful than the other girls in the class. And I was very proud of that. And this is at the time I was telling everyone that I am Erica. Um, I loved the way the, um, the structure of the word went, how it spelled the sentence, like I am America and saying I am Erica. And I just loved that and played with it. And I wrote it in cursive all the time. And my mother was mortified with this behavior. She you know, told me, so I'm mortified. In order to correct this, um, I was placed in a room, my, my bedroom. And I was given a um, graph paper. They're 100 sheet graph paper um, notebooks. She went through this big ritual of having to create this perfect sentence that would fill in every single square on the graph. So the sentence she came up with was, I will never make my mother angry or I will never make my mother mad ever again. I actually like wrote it out like a, in therapy. I like have a over in my notes in another room. I'd have to go like, I don't have it with me. I can't show it to you, but this isn't TV. So it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll take your word um, for it. Yeah. Anyways. So what I had to do was in print, I had to fill in every single square on that notebook. The, to give you the idea of the math, it's like a hundred squares across and like, some odd or 27 squares across or whatever it's a hundred pages it's like over 10,000 it's insane it took months to yeah. fill in these blanks and as I was filling in the blanks the door would be periodically kicked open to see if I was doing it right or wrong and if I was doing it wrong the belt would come out and I would be hit with the belt several times while being screamed at, you know, this huge message of all these crimes of how terrible and horrible a person I was and how I needed to be right. It, it was, it was scary. I felt like I was in a prison. I like I'd never escape. Like the only way I could be able to get out, like everything, like even holding a pencil, like to this day, holding a pencil, like locks in a deep um, crevice. And it used to send like a shockwave through into my heart. At the end of this punishment, I could no longer write with my hands. I wound up having to fail school over and over and over again. I was moved around to so many different schools throughout my mother's chasing around her boyfriends and getting new men to man me up that um, I wound up like I went to like seven different first grades in like three different states. And in each new environment, the teachers were all also old school looking to man me up. So when students would beat me up for being a girl, I would cry to the teachers and I would be like 
watching the other students and watching, I'd see the girls in a circle and I'd see the boys in a circle and I'd see me alone and separate. And I didn't know where I belonged because I needed to be with the girls, but I couldn't, I didn't know anyone. I was always the new kid in school. So I was just kind of looking to be accepted and the boys would come over and like mess with the girls and the girls would cry and the boys would get in trouble and they'd have to go. The boys come over and mess with me. I would cry. I would get yelled at, told my feelings are wrong, told I need to do something different and stop making the boys attack me. So I just became the girl it was okay for the boys to hit. So in school, I didn't know where I was or what I was, and I didn't have any connection to community at all. Like I didn't have kids who I grew up with. I was always separated and completely isolated. So I eventually after this, this writing thing, I, I couldn't write in school anymore. I couldn't function. Started failing school. I eventually, um, I did write one little message to a teacher said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do my homework. My mother keeps hitting me. They called child protective services. And I eventually like, after it was like a two week, <laughs> I'd have to make a long story short on that one. I wound up escaping to my grandmother's house. From there, I refused to leave. My grandmother at least protected me a little bit from them. I managed to escape to my father's house because at the time I believed I would be safe. Then wound up subject to a new school system to where um, in this school system, my first day in class, the, the teacher said, I wish you were a girl because we don't have enough girls for the school play. We are doing the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and I immediately said, I'll be a girl. <laughs> the teacher was like, well, you'd have to wear a dress. You know, like I, and I was like, I'll wear a dress. <laughs> no problem. I'll do it. I promise. <laughs> I, for like this first week, I was on like cloud nine. I was like, all of a sudden I'm in school and I like, I get to wear a dress and be a girl and I'm in this play. And I thought like, this felt like the first time in my life I'd actually be able to be me. What I had learned to do with my mother and everything else, I had started to learn how to impersonate television characters as a personality in order to hide who I was. So very early on through all those beatings and being locked in the closet and everything else that was going on, my mind had split and I started to learn how to impersonate different things, but it wasn't fused yet. Like it takes a while to really break your brain with DID. It's not like an instant thing, I guess. I don't know. Like I only know my experience with it. And Erica it was, Maria. Yeah. Yeah. You, sorry to interrupt because you're on a roll and I love Oh, I'm this. sorry. Yeah, I'm dabbing. No, I no, no, this. no. This is great. This is great, great stuff and deep stuff. But you mentioned DID. So yes. for us who are not as familiar with the DSM-5, how do you define DID? Oh, DID is um, commonly called a, a multiple personality disorder. And uh, what happens is um, in, early in early childhood trauma, the brain tries to protect itself and it, it's capable of developing different personalities. So what I wound up developing was a strong protector personality, this kind of like male-ish character I was learning how to project. But in, when I, in my early childhood, it was very young and very new. So like I was just impersonating, like uh, one example is I impersonated the unknown comic from this TV show, The Gong Show. And what I did is I just wore a paper bag over my head with holes cut in it for a mask which is what this character on this television show did and for like two weeks i wouldn't take this mask off and during those two weeks i didn't get beat because i wasn't acting like myself therefore my mother wasn't mortified by my behavior and i didn't have to be made a man of by the boyfriend i was then just weird so I have that a quick was okay question. well real quick and, 
Oh, sorry, real quick, Natalie. So disassociative identity disorder, which is formally multi-personality disorder, that was changed from the DSM-5 to DSM, or excuse me, from DSM-4 to DSM-5, and that's how the American Psychological Association calls formerly what was multi-personality disorder. So I just want to make sure we're yep. getting Absolutely. terms out there correctly. Yep. So that way if somebody goes to the DSM and looks it up and like, oh, where's multi-personality disorder? Well, it's not in the newest one. So it's not. No. Yep. yep. That is it. You have it 100% correct. And it is like super, super rare. Getting diagnosed with it was an ordeal. It took like a year in and out of the hospital through the VA. They went through several other diagnoses in the DSM trying to find one that would fit. Um, they went through a whole course of different medications, trying to find one that would have an effect on what was going on, trying to get me to stop trying to kill myself and trying to like, I was in this kind, I was in this horrified, burning rage where I just needed to die. When I would, before I wound up going to the hospital, like I was surrounded by police, basically calling them out to try and shoot me. It was, it was terrifying. There's a, yeah, yeah the, we... the VA, the VA took care of me on that. Unfortunately, as soon as I came out as trans, the VA wanted nothing more to do with me. Like the VA is great. If you're a cisgendered white male, like you get everything, boom, the minute you transition, oh, you are done. <laughs> That's a whole separate thing though. That should, that can be a whole different show. That actually is. It's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. good. It so, needs to be addressed. Yeah. And death by suicide is not, or death by, or excuse me, suicide death by, by cop. cop. Yeah. yeah. Suicide yeah. by cop is not that uncommon. No, it isn't. No. Nope. And I, I started trying suicide at 13. That's the first time I tried to kill myself. That um, new school that I was telling you about that I went to. Yeah. And that beautiful first couple of weeks getting to be NM in the Wizard of Oz. Well, after that, I went right back to being the girl it was okay for the boys to hit, and everything just fell apart. My father was, you know, also very, very sexually abusive, and I loved him, and I tried to imagine him different. Fortunately, however, though, he was also super, super absentee. He would leave for work. He would come home and just get, like, hammered. So he really only interacted with me, like, one, sometimes two days out of the week usually i would just see him in passing and he would drop off a bag of potato chips and two liters of soda and that was my dinner so i'd like i would go down into town and steal food and stuff and i would go into um the goodwill and that and i would steal my clothes you know things that i needed i would just go and again there was a junkyard in the backyard uh, not in the backyard but in the back field because i was out in the uh, in the country i would go in the junkyard and look around for things uh, things i could make toys out of i would play games in my head and during that time at least by myself even though i didn't have people to interact with i was able to be at least safe alone and that gave me some room to kind of grow and like be myself but then as i grew into an adult i just became very very isolated super isolated to where I could only exist as myself when I was completely alone. If the slightest hint of another person's existence came on my radar, like if I heard a cough in the background down a hall and it wasn't even in the room, immediately these um, defensive personalities would fall over. This armor, this new, per this old, this persona built and refined on television characters and honed throughout years of practice and trial and growth since I was a little girl would fall over me. And I would eventually be just like, oh. I, I, I can actually like bring it down and like, in but I don't like to, and it would fall over me. 
and I would immediately be guarded and frozen and locked deep inside myself where I couldn't move and see and couldn't exist at all. And these complex rules of behavior would kick in all these rules of what I should be doing, how I should say, how every reaction, every conversation that I would have with people was always, I would always force it to follow a script that I had prepared that fit the character that I was projecting. So like at one time I was an artist named Wolfgang and I had very specific rules for how this character dressed, um, for how this character acted. I incorporated a lot of like uh, Kerouac and uh, like beatnik kind of things and images too. I was very artful with how I created these personas. So I created like this, you know, Jack Kerouac-esque kind of motorcycle biker kind of artist type character. And I lived as that, as Wolfgang for like two years. But then the personas are always so thin, like I couldn't, you know, because you're not really being yourself, I couldn't develop relationships. I would kill the persona and I would move to a new town. I would get rid of everything that I owned. I would move to a new town and start a new persona and just become a new and trying to be the right me. Was there anyone who knew you over multiple personas who maybe just thought that you were uh, being eccentric and kind of wrote it off as that? Or Yes, I got a lot of credit for just being eccentric. Very few people knew me all the way through because I moved so much and from different regions and counties and all over the place. So I never really developed a lot of long-term relationships until I started tattooing. Once I started tattooing, I actually started to become trapped. And that's what led to the crisis that almost got me shot by the police. You want to go into that or are you? Oh, sure. Okay. okay. I wound up on um, why well, I met my wife and I had explained to her what I had explained to everyone else my whole life is that I don't know what's wrong with me. Something happened to me really bad when I was little and me is just impersonating TV characters. Like I was always honest as I could about who I was, but I didn't know like much of anything. I knew that like I, me inside, I felt like I was just one of the roles I was not allowed to play. Like I had built up so many complex characters that I really didn't know where I came from. Like I figured I had to be sourced from television somewhere. It isn't until I like came out in therapy that I realized there ain't nothing like me on television at all. Um, <laughs> not yet. But, there should be, there should be somebody like you on television. I'll tell you that. We're right getting now. there. We're getting more representation out there. Maybe. Absolutely. We are. I, I love that I can watch television now and not see it as orders for behavior. And when I see trans women on television, I like to see like, ah, oh, there's one of my sisters. Not like, oh, there's an obligation for behavior that I have to fulfill, you know, because that's the way it was with my, with my characters. I would watch television shows. And if there was a male character doing something that was heroic to me, I felt like society fully 100% expected that behavior from my character from my persona uh, it's like that's why i love roger from american um, dad <laughs> i tattooed roger on my leg <laughs> she was part of my coming out process i have a tattoo of roger in drag and it says when life's a drag just get into it <laughs> he was definitely my favorite character on that show so. <laughs> so 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 erica marie you also mentioned that masks and i know religion was an important part of your life for a oh, short yes. time so was that a mask that you wore? Because not only was religion a part of your life, but you were a minister and ran a church out of your house. So, oh, yes. I mean, how did that, um, how that, did that cover up That was wonderful because I'm very, 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 very spiritually oriented. Um, I'm not a Christian. I'm not, I don't have a mainstream religious faith. Part of my anthropology studies in undergraduate, I studied anthropology of religion. 
And when I was a minister, what I did is I traveled all the churches in the region and attended services there and, and studied the different religions of the region and wound up with a seat on the Ecumenical Council of Leroy. So what I did is I tried to understand the divisions in the Christian churches. And then as an anthropologist, I tried to understand the divisions between all faiths and through studies like, you know, various theoreticians like Emil Durkheim and that, you know, starting to understand the source of human belief and faith and different studies in psychology, you know, we have different religious components of our brain that like actually just having a faith gives us strength. It doesn't give us knowledge, you know, to paraphrase Durkheim, religion doesn't give us knowledge, but it gives us strength. It gives us courage to persevere when things like really suck. And I've used a religious faith throughout my whole life. Uh, Winnipesaukee, this lake that I learned how to dive in when I was a child. I learned how to dive for clams when I was two and a half years old. It's just before I learned how to tie my shoes. And I carried my love for that lake. And it anchored to this feeling of love that I had for my parents and preserved love in my heart. So keeping that in me through all the pain I was going through and the turmoil of my existence and my yearning to die that love and hope that I was holding on to helped me persevere. So as I was like falling apart with these different personalities, I was now in a stable relationship with my wife who loved me and was always accepting the new personalities and was seeing more and more of me. My love was feeling constrained and locked and I was dying inside and I couldn't get out. And I was afraid that if I came out, that everything would be destroyed and my life would end. And you know, very apocalyptic view of my own existence, because I knew that I was wrong. I knew that my existence was wrong. I knew that the one thing that about me that absolutely I could be anything else. It didn't matter what television character, it didn't matter what I impersonated. That was all okay. I could do whatever I want as long as I just wasn't me. I knew that golden rule, don't be me. And I knew if I was me, I would be dead. I knew that me was the same as putting a gun to my head. So I kept on putting guns to my head. I would sit there so many nights with a loaded pistol to my head. I learned gunsmithing and I would work on the triggers of um, my rifles and pistols. And that at the time I had a whole arsenal. I don't really have guns at all anymore. I'm like not into them, but at the time I needed something to like put something in my brain and I would do work on the triggers to where I would have them down where the slightest touch would just boom. They would go off and I would sit there and just get drunk and hold the pistol to my head, squeezing the trigger as tight as I could, getting as drunk as I could, just waiting for an accident, a whoops, something to make my father proud. Because when I first tried to kill myself in school, he came home to pick me up and was very disappointed that I didn't succeed. He was very pissed off that he had a wasted day of work. He dropped me off at home and said, well, if you're going to do it, at least do it right. There's guns in the house. There's knives in the house. They told me to lock that shit up, and I'm not going to fuck with that. Here's the keys to the ammo. Good luck. And he left and stayed gone for like hours. I sat there on the kitchen floor with a knife, trying to push it into my stomach, trying to find the courage and strength, to just push it in. I didn't know where my liver was. I didn't understand anatomy enough. I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live. I wanted him to love me, but I couldn't get that. And like, I was all... Then, you know, they sent me to a special school and then I wound up on where I thought I would be safe and no longer bullied because I thought the special school would keep me safe. And I wound up um, attacked by the students because I loved my father so much. Eventually I was um, 
I just freaked. I started throwing desks at one of these kids who was attacking me. And then the teachers attacked me. I wound up, I'm fighting to get up. Five teachers were holding me down. I eventually crawled underneath a um, desk and curled up fetal. And that's when I actually died inside. That's when like DID fully took hold was right there. I curled up under this desk for like 45 minutes or an hour or so. Still in contact with the teacher who coaxed me out. She said it was like 45 minutes, but in there I was just curled up in a ball and everything became very dark. All sound turned off, all world became blackness. I became very, very, very small. And I learned, and I just wanted to start over. I thought about Winnipesaukee. I thought about diving for clams. I thought about just wishing that I could just start life over because fuck, what the fuck happened? 13 years. Like I started off, like everything seemed so great and wonderful. I dreamt I want to do everything. I remember laying on the lawn in my front yard after, after learning how to die for clams and looking at the sun and hearing the sun say to me, now that you're alive, what do you want to do? I heard it as the voice of God in my heart. And I said, I want to do everything. And then like all fucking hell broke loose. <laughs> my parents got divorced. They blamed me for it. And off to the races, we went. So now here I am curled up underneath this desk, just fetal and just wanting to die, just wishing I could just not exist. And I couldn't, and I tried and I couldn't, and I curl up smaller and smaller and smaller inside until I just kind of just realized, no, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to exist anymore. And I started impersonating, there was a, t a, t a, a TV show at, out at the time called V, um, was visitors, well, aliens who wore human skin, but they were really lizards underneath. And I became one of them. I um, went home and I sewed up, I um, sewed up one of their uniforms. I didn't have a sewing machine. I did everything by hand. I did, I did quilting with cotton balls because that's all that I could get That is dedication. I sew, sewing by hand takes so much time. Well, I wasn't very good at it and I had no real teaching. So I was always tearing out the crotch in my clothes. I always had to carry around extra needle and thread and fabric, trying to like add material to get this thing to fit right. I called it sewing in darts. <laughs> I was just constantly sewing away at this. So I always had needle and thread and I became this character. And at that point, then all of a sudden the other kids in school identified me as insane and as insane, people stopped hurting me and I learned to become more insane. And I learned to become downright fucking scary. And that worked. That kept people away. But then I couldn't have anyone near me. We've just got a couple minutes left. And last time we spoke, you told us about returning to Lake Winnipesaukee. And oh, I, yes. I enjoyed that story. So I, if you wouldn't mind telling it again, it's just kind of our, our last I piece and what it felt story. like for you. Yep. On the trip up there. I was just, uh, just recovering in therapy. I had been all through hospitalization with a really good therapist for DID. I've been in therapy for about two years, I think, maybe three at this point. I'm not really sure. I was going like, I go, I just graduated every other week this week. Anyways, Jeannie and I are driving up to Lake Winnipesaukee and I have this idea. I want to return to this lake like an anadromous fish and return to my home waters where I was born. And I remember diving for clams when I was a child. So I wanted to go up and dive for clams and I wanted to have a big cathartic experience. I wanted to feel free of everything, but I didn't know how I was going to feel. I knew what I wanted, but I was just, I just gave myself permission to love my parents. No matter what, if I felt it, I gave myself permission to feel like I just wanted to feel I was so locked up. We get out into the lake and I have all my gear on 
And once I get into the dive, I'm just checking my equipment. It's very meditative. There's a lot of checks and stuff. It's like launching a spaceship because you're going into an alien world. So I have all my um, gear, I'm checking my air, I'm checking my pressures, and I'm thinking about my parents, and I'm really thinking about my father, and I'm thinking about the dive, and I roll off into the boat, and into the water I go, and I start my descent, and as I go down, the water is perfectly crystal clear, I can see for like 100 feet in every direction, and there's nothing, it's just open, it's like falling through the air. I'm equalizing, pinching my nose, keeping my ear pressure equalized. And as I start to get down toward the bottom, I see the entire bottom as far as the eye can see is littered with black, looks like black stones, black specks. As I get closer and closer and closer, I see that it's not really black specks, but it's clams. And I'm like, there are clams there, but they're all black. And then this fish swims in, this one big like 18 inch long smallmouth bass swims in. We named that, I named them Bob. So I'm looking at the clams and I go and I go to pick one up and I realize the clam is dead. It's all broken, it's falling apart. My heart starts to sink. I wanted to recover a clam because recovering the clam was what was gonna let me feel. Like I'm really getting upset. I'm like, I pick up these clams and they keep breaking and they keep dissolving. Every single clam breaks apart in my hands. I pick it up and I start swimming around and this fish keeps swimming with me. And I find, I'm like, I'm about to cry underwater, but it, and I, the clams keep falling apart. And I started like, realize like that's gone. Like the clams are gone. I finally said, I'm just going to take the best clam that I can find. And I'm just going to, I can't hold on to this anymore. I'm going to pick up the best one. And I carefully folded it up and I put it in my BCD. And I decided I'm just going to enjoy the rest of this dive because this is once in a lifetime. And I started swimming with this bass. And this bass spent the entire dive with me. I was underwater for like 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I got lost in time. I wasn't really watching time. I was watching the pressure on my tank. And I just swam with this bass. And this bass to me became the spirit of Winnipesaukee. It became freedom for me. And I, I resolved I wanted to find a little piece of like jewelry, a token to take home. And as I swam around, I found this broken hasp of a lock, which obviously hearers can't see it, but it's a cut off, like sheds and gate, like hasp. And I collected that as a piece of jewelry. It fit around my finger sort of perfectly, but super awkwardly. And um, I took that with me. And later in therapy, it became really important to me as part of a healing ritual for freeing myself from the pain and forgiving my parents for what they did to me. That was to come a few years later, though, after I transitioned. When I came up out of the water of the lake, I just had this object with me. I had these dissolving clams, this memory of this bass, the spirit of Winnipesaukee, the smile of the great spirit. Uh, that's what Winnipesaukee means in Algonquin. And, um, and I had this lock hasp. And um, I took the clam and I took the lock hasp and I eventually utilized those in a healing ritual to memorialize my parents and the love that I had for them that I could never get back, but is still in my heart. And I gave myself permission to love them. I, I separated myself from their anger. I threw it off into a crick, but it would take another half an hour to tell the story of that. So I can't tell it now. But um, I freed myself from that pain. And now to this, now, now I write letters to both my parents. When I feel like I need my parents, I don't expect to get 
responses from them and the very one i do get responses they're really effed up so i never read that i never read the responses as a response to my letter i just file them away as sad proof that they are who they are but for me when i talk to my parents i like have this little ritual i write a letter to them both of them together because i can never speak to them together and i go to i walk to the mailbox i'm going to visit my parents and i mail it to them and i tell them about my life whether they like it or not <laughs> they can deal with it they can't stop me from having a mommy and daddy and um, even though it is only in my heart and in my little fantasy land it's psychologically very satisfactory and my therapist thinks it's wonderful and it's good for me so you know I have to accept though that they're really gone and dead so I'm working on accepting that like you know I'm still a little bit like, you know, part of me every time I send these letters, I want them to have a cathartic experience and come back. That's never going to happen. They were never there. Like, I still have to deal with that. But I've been able to deal with a lot of things. And even now, like this year, I'm on track to complete my very first year of school without missing a day, without missing assignments, and turning in all my hand, all my written work on time without any emotional breakdowns. Like, writing for me would break me down to tears. I, I couldn't do it. I would have to fight these great emotional forces in order to get writing out and be able to, and be able to do my academic work. Like college, I had to do in a, um, in a special program. I had to do it all guided independent study so I didn't have to be in a classroom. So graduate school is like my first time in a classroom since like all of that stuff. So it's like really like I've just been healing. I just love it. I, I'm addicted to healing now. Well, I think I think it's thing... a good thing to be addicted to. There are yeah. lots worse things. Yeah, there there are a lot worse addictions. <laughs> but I, I think what comes through with this is you know, and our audience isn't going to see it, but I think your warmth and your smile comes through this as even as you go through these deep conversations and these deep topics. There's a smile and there's that spirit of Winnipesaukee, as you put it, and that love that comes through from your voice. And like you said, you know Erica Marie was there when you were in first grade or even before. And so walking into your authentic self and therapy and all the hard work you've done is what has brought you the peace and satisfaction of living congruently as yourself. I always dreamed what would life be like if I could be 100% myself and now I know. I agree with Amy coming across on the camera. I've only met Eric Marie the few times we've been doing this and yeah, you just seem like such a happy person. Oh, thank you. You both seem like super happy people too. I love talking to you. I hope we have audio trouble again. <laughs> Well, like to bring you back yeah 30 minutes is not enough time to hear yeah, all of your stories we're, we're scheduling 2022 already so you know we, we can bring you back in the new year to pick up on some of these stories where you left off because i think i think these are good stories and i think you know when we walk into our own authenticity people see that and you know my family i don't want to speak too much for them but i know there are things from my past that said yeah amy was always there and you know and now my parents see me for who i am and you know they they understand that this is really who i am and they're proud of me and, and that, oh that's wonderful oh yeah. i'm so happy for you oh yeah. that is so nice and I, and i wish you could have that and i and i can sense i have you a family my, my married family loves me my mother-in-law calls me oh. her daughter-in-law and she means it yep, i have know, it and your wife is wonderful and she you know, is and, and i've my I've kids been, love me i i have it all yeah so maybe we'll get natalie a tattoo in a few weeks oh i'm <laughs> so i have so many tattoo plans i want full sleeves i've already started working on it like <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, if you want, you could do my crazy mermaid. I'm very. Oh, I I'm a mermaid. A mermaid doing a mermaid. Perfect. Nice. So anyway, well, this is a perfect place to jump off on Halloween. So we'll get um, Erica Marie back to back to handing out. Yeah, for trick back to handing out candy. Thank you for coming back and putting up with us and our technical difficulties. But we'll have you back on next year to pick up on some of these stories. How's that? Wonderful. We have fun Halloween. All right. Happy Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween. And we'll be Bye. right back with more Transformation Thursday right after the big voice of Transformation Thursday. Bill Satry asks you for some money. Did you know it takes money and time to host, edit, and market a podcast? And did you know our hosts have limited funds, but still want to get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience? This is where you come in. Head over to TransformationThursday.com, where you will find the Transformation Thursday Patreon page. There, someday, Natalie and Amy will start to post Patreon-only content, so let's all I'll help our hosts, Natalie and Amy, get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. Patreon levels start at just $1 a month. That is it. $1 a month to help the world understand the trans and gender diverse community. Just head online and go to TransformationThursday.com. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. And my name is Natalie Walker. And my pronouns are she, her. There's just a lot to talk about with Erica Marie. She just has so many stories. There's so many stories. She is so well-spoken. And you can tell she has done the very hard work in therapy to be able to speak about these things very straightforwardly. Absolutely. Like meeting her, I would not have assumed at all that this is someone who went through some of those things that she has gone through. She just seems so bubbly and upbeat and so herself. It's crazy to think about. It is crazy to think about, but what the the thing is, is like she is living so authentically as herself right now that there is no mistake in that, that happiness and that peace because I, my last tattoo I got from her, and when you're talking to her, there's there's just this no sign of this life that and this experience that is behind her. But when you hear her speak here about finding herself through therapy, through all those suicide attempts, and through all the stuff that she's been through, to hear her recount going through therapy, to hear her going to the bottom literally of Lake Winnipesaukee and swimming with a fish and finding her spirituality, her religion of love is just such a touching experience that, you know, you just can't walk away from that feeling. Even though we heard some really tough topics in the beginning, you walk away from this uplifted, edified, and I've said this before about the clients that I'm beginning to see, in my mental health internship this semester, the resiliency of the human spirit never ceases to amaze me. And that's what I walk away from this with. What I love, I love that phrase that you use with her is the, the religion of love. I think that's something I hold to and talking to Erica Marie makes me just feel it more. She's just, she believes in the idea that you can forgive, you can go on, you can continue to love. And I think that's awesome, phenomenal. I think that's a perfect place to leave it, don't you? I do too. Yeah, so why don't we uh, wrap this up and we'll have Bill Sadry say goodnight to everybody. Why not, right? Absolutely. Take it away, Bill. 
Thank you for listening to another meandering episode of Transformation Thursday. The podcast is produced and edited by Amy Stevens and Natalie Walker. The general counsel of the Transformation Thursday podcast network is Francesca Rodriguez. And marketing assistance is provided by Kai Von Doom. Until we all assemble again from the land of 10,000 lakes, my name is Bill Satry, the big voice of Transformation Thursday. Good night, everyone.